Hello, welcome to another episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vanskin. Welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Today, we have a great guest, someone who just wrote a fantastic book, The Next American Economy. We've got a lot to discuss about classical liberalism, the free market, uh, and what the benefits are of capitalism. But it's something that we really got to get back to, because unfortunately, America has been heading too far down the road to serfdom, if you will, as Hayek put it. So first, though, um, Dr. Samuel Gregg, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Vance, thanks for having me on. It's good to be talking with you. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, I'm going to first go through your bio, and then we can get right into some good discussion here. Um, but Dr. Samuel Gregg, and I'm going to call him Sam here today, uh, he's, he's, he said that was okay, is a distinguished fellow in political economy and senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research, also known as AIER. He has a doctorate in philosophy and moral philosophy and political economy from Oxford University and a master's in political philosophy from the University of Melbourne. I should say he's originally from Australia, so I'm sure we'll get into some of that. Um, he has written and spoken extensively on questions of political economy, economic history, monetary theory and policy, and natural law theory. He is the author of 16 books, including, including On Order Liberty, Commercial Society, Becoming Europe, um, and then the most recently, The Next American Economy, Nation, State, and Markets in an Uncertain World that was published this year. And you can find all this information also at our show notes page uh, that I'll make sure to put that on there. Two of his books have been shortlisted for Conservative Book of the Year. Many of his books and over 400 articles and opinion pieces have been translated into a variety of languages. He is also a contributor to Law and Liberty, a fellow of Royal Hist Historical Society, an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute, a fellow of the Center of the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. He has also served as a visiting scholar at the Heritage Foundation. He has published many, many journal articles and a number of, of, of outlets and academic um, journals. And I'll be sure to, of course, to have that on the show notes page as well. In 2001, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a member of the Mont Pelerin Society in 2004. In 2008, he was elected a member of the Philadelphia Society and a member of the Rural Economic Society. In 2017, he was made a fellow of the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. He served as president of the Philadelphia Society from 2019 to 2021. He is a general editor of Lexington's Books of Studies in Ethics and Economic Series. He also sits on the academic advisory boards of the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, Campion College in Sydney, and in a few other places as well is very a lot of prestigious things you have going on there, Sam. And it's really a fantastic opportunity to have you on the Let People Prosper show. We've got a lot to talk about. So with all that said, let's jump right into it. Um, so what I like to do first with, with my guests is really try to get an idea of what drives you. What is your motivations, your passions um, that keep you doing what you do each and every day? So without further ado, Sam, um, what drives you? Well, thanks for having me on the show, Vance. It's a great pleasure to be with you, and I'm thank you to all the people who are listening. It's a good question to begin with, right? Because I think it's we have to ask ourselves, what is it that makes us get up in the morning and do what we do? And I think there's a couple of things, at least in my case, and I suspect that they're shared by many of your listeners. One, of course, is a concern for human freedom. I think if you study human history enough, you discover pretty quickly that liberty institutions of limited government, constitutionalism, let alone things like market economies and rule of law, they are not the norm. 
in human history. If you go back through especially the history of the West, you tend to find that the history of political and, and economic institutions is not one of liberty, it's not one of pers personal responsibility. It's a history in which the state looms extremely large, in which uh, arbitrary power is often the norm, in which people are often fixed in particular positions in life that they really can't escape from and not, are not really supposed to even think about escaping from. Uh, we also discover that when liberty emerges and uh, takes root, it can very easily be snuffed out. And we've seen that again and again and again. Uh, so when Lord Acton said liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization, uh, what he meant there was that maturing took a very long period of time. And we, in many respects, are the inheritors of that particular tradition, that tradition of ordered liberty, of limited government, constitutionalism, free markets, private property, all these things that have led to incredible levels of human prosperity, uh, billions of people escaping from poverty in a very short period of time, but have also created space in which people can use their abilities and talents in ways that they see fit and in ways that benefit lots of other people. So that's really what drives me when it comes to thinking about the importance of the free society, a free society that, that takes norms seriously, objective moral norms seriously, but also a society that understands that it's the benefit, it's benefited from a long historical legacy that goes back two and a half thousand years has really only flourished significantly, I would argue, since the, the late 18th century. And America, of course, is very much part of that. America is very much part of that story. And it seems to me it's a good idea to have people around who are willing to defend that, to explain it to people, because uh, I've often remarked uh, in different contexts, there aren't that many people who are doing that. Now, that's partly because everyone's consumed with their everyday activities. We all have families to take care of. We have jobs to do, etc. And that's important and that's good. But most of us don't have the luxury of being able to spend a lot of time thinking and writing and defending some of these things that I know you, Vance, take very seriously and I know many of your listeners do. So that's what gets me up in the morning. It's what drives me to sort of push back every day against the, let's call it the forces of collectivism that are coming not just from the left these days, of course, but they're also coming from the mm -hmm. right, particularly when it comes to economic questions. And uh, I've often thought that uh, when Alexis de Tocqueville said that true friends of liberty are rare indeed, he was definitely onto something there because I think when you look around and you ask who are the true friends of liberty these days, it's a small gang of people. <laughs> and for that reason, I think we need more people who are willing to sort of engage in these types of activities. And I've been privileged and blessed to be one of those people for, well, 21 years now. Wow. I'm so thankful that you are doing that and you have been blessed to share that good message. Um, it's one that we do a lot here on the Let People Prosper show is to really highlight the benefits and the values of allowing for markets and liberty to really work. I mean, I think it's one of the key things that yeah, God wanted us to do was to flourish on this earth that he created, right? And so allowing us to do that and allow for these institutional frameworks to support 
that flourishing and that prosperity is is so important. And so we do need more opportunities to explain that. It, it's one of the reasons, Sam, that I, I kind of started creating this podcast, really, hmm. is to have more people having these discussions. And so when I saw your book and have been following you on Twitter <laughs> um, and, and everything else, I was like, you know, I think it would be a great discussion to have. So that's a great opening for, I think, what, what I'd love to discuss more today. So what exactly has been your, your work? I know you were at the Acton Institute for a while. You're now at the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER. What are some of the highlights of your work? Well, I was at the Acton Institute for 21 and a half years, which, of course, is an extraordinarily long period of time these days. And I was very focused there upon some of the questions that generally concern the free society, the, the moral foundations of a free society, but also the economic and institutional foundations of a free society. Some of the things that I mentioned before, constitutionalism, rule of law, etc. Uh, I've been interested in a number of different things in this regard. One, of course, is I've, I've been very interested in the history of liberty and how hi- liberty has emerged over time and the different philosophical, political, legal, and e- economic ideas that have contributed to that. And as you know, that's a very long process. That's something that's really right. two and a half thousand years old. So the notion that this sort of just popped out of nowhere uh, I think is mistaken, and it's very important for us, who those of us who are in the liberty business, to be able to explain the sort of long-term origins and unfolding of this particular project, this project of, let's call it the Liberty and Personal Responsibility Project. So that's involved writing, I started writing a lot of academic books, and I thought that was that's important to do because the academy is a, a very important audience. But I also, I think around about 2007, 2008, I also concluded that there's vast audiences of people out there who are not going to spend the time or the money for that matter buying a hugely expensive academic book uh, that is often written, as you know, for other academics. And as I said, that's important. I also concluded around about 2007, 2008 that it was time to start pushing these ideas to wider audiences. And by that, I don't mean dumbing things down. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm making, I'm talking about making these ideas more accessible to those people who may not have time to think about these things 24-7 like you and I do, but people who do think about these things, who look around the world and their country and they say, you know, that whole promise of the American experiment in ordered liberty, I'm not sure what happened to it, but it doesn't look quite like what our founders particularly intended right now. How did this happen and how do we get back to that? So there's been that type of writing as well. I've also done a lot of essay writing. So I'm talking about things between 1,500 and 2,000 words uh, with places like Law and Liberty, who you mentioned before, because I think there's actually a very big audience for people like that who who want to read more than, say, an 800-word op-ed, but don't necessarily have time to read a 5,000-word or a 4,000-word piece. So that 1,500 to 2,000 word piece, I think, gives you the, the space to say some deeper things, but also not bore your audience with trivialities. And also, it's a type of discipline, right? It's a discipline to put that on yourself that makes you ask what's really important. So in terms of uh, sort of the trajectory of my work, I suppose since 2015, it became very, very apparent to me that at least in the United States, and I think this is true of the Western world, and I know you've, you've noticed this as well, that 
so many people and institutions that I thought were reliable when it came to things like markets, entrepreneurship, free trade, constitutionally limited government, rule of law, were not so reliable anymore. That there was a lot of questioning going on, not just from the left, which we had become pretty much expectant of. We, We were used to critics from the left, whether they be sort of uh, what you might call democratic socialist types like Bernie Sanders, or even what you might call sort of mild neo-Keynesians who were forever looking for different ways to intervene in the economy. But I'm talking about people on the right, people who, uh, who in many cases were and still are friends of people like you and me, who we know quite well, who suddenly started saying things like, I think we should be thinking about protectionism as perhaps a better approach to trade policy. Or maybe there's room for industrial policy to try and engender different outcomes in different sectors of the economy. And not just that, but also using the state to try and engage in what I would call a sort of reverse social engineering. Like the left have done social engineering for decades, right? They've been doing that's their sort of thing. That's what they love to do. But there were people on the right who were starting to argue in favor of these things. And and in many cases, I think the motivations I quite understood. I mean, I'm very concerned about what's happened to the family. I'm very worried about what's happened to young American men. And uh, I, I quite understand many of the concerns, but I don't think that massive intervention or even strategic intervention by the state into different sectors of the economy is the solution to problems that I think often are much more social and cultural in their nature. And of course, I've seen more people on the right head down that, let's call it this economic nationalist, uh, interventionist path. And that's very worrying. Oh, absolutely. Populism, economic populism, um, do-it-yourself economics, as we often call it. And it seemed to me that that those of us on the free market side uh, had taken a lot of those people for granted. We had just assumed that they were with us on economic issues. But after 2015, it became apparent to me that that assumption was no longer true in many cases. And we needed to recalibrate our arguments so as to refight many of these 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 debates. Because as you know... Um, It's not as if economic nationalism is a new phenomenon in American history. It's been around from the beginning, right? Industrial policy has been around and has been part of the American economy for a long time, despite all its well-documented failures. But also when you hear people on the right saying things like, well, we can't get rid of the administrative state or we've failed to do so. So why don't we just take it over? and use it for our own ends, which sounds to me like the argument of a crypto progressive. Uh, Mm. So these are the sorts of concerns that have animated me, particularly since 2015. And to be, you know, perfectly honest with you, I've spent more time arguing with people on the right about some of these questions, some of whom my friends about these issues than I have with uh, the sort of the usual suspects on the left. And it's very worrying to me because I fear that many people on the right are losing sight of the genius of the American experiment and just how much credence 
and authority it gave to ideas of economic liberty and economic and economic liberalization and free markets. I've always thought, and I say this in my book, which you very kindly mentioned at the beginning, The Next American Economy, I've always thought it's almost providential, right? And you'll understand what I mean by that. It's almost providential that the American Revolution, that the Declaration of Independence comes out the very same year that maybe one of the most important books ever written, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith was published. I've always thought there's something providential about that. And we know that people like Smith and others were paying attention to what was going on in America, and they saw some wonderful things happening there. And I think it would be a a, a terrible shame, if not a disaster for the country, if significant segments of Americans who say they care about the founding would give up on some some of that founding in order to pursue particular political agendas in the present. Well said, Sam. Well said. I just kind of dig in there just a little bit, and then mm-hmm. I want to get into the book. I, I share your concern about national conservatism, the populism sort of direction that things have been going. I think you you, you may know that I was in the Trump administration for a year, mm-hmm. uh, from June 2019 to May of 2020, as, as chief economist of the Office of Management and Budget. So my main focus was on the budget and trying to rein in government spending, um, things of that nature. We weren't really that successful <laughs> in doing that. And there were a lot of internal discussions and debates. And, and, and within the White House, you may not see this so much externally, but internally, there were a lot of good discussions, battles that were going on, if you will, about protectionism, tariffs. You know, um, I'm not a fan of tariffs. I, I, I continue to um, argue that that was not a good direction to go. Um, but you had others who were, you know, they really thought that that was the direction to head. And, and I think to your point, though, Sam, is that it comes from a good place. You know how a lot of times we say, you know, if it may come from the best of intentions, or as Milton Friedman said, don't judge a policy by its intentions, but by its results, right? right? They could have very well intended goals that are there. I mean, I think when you look out into the, the, the global economy, you see what's happening in places like China, which don't seem to be following the same rules of the game that we have here. You have the things that are happening in Mexico. Um, you have things in the Middle East. And it makes it, in some sense, easier, quote unquote, easier for us to say, you know what, it's their fault. Right. We've got to go after them somehow. We need to put in place these tariffs, which are really just a tax on Americans, so that way we can close the trade deficit or however you want to define it. But, you know, as something that I've mentioned on this program and in other my, my speeches is that when we're pointing the finger at someone else, we've got three other p- fingers that are pointing back at us. <laughs> and I think that we oftentimes forget that. That we need to be thinking about our founding. We need to be thinking about liberty and the free market and what that free market has been able to provide and the success and opportunity for people to be entrepreneurs and, and prosper and do all the things that they do. Because instead of you know blaming China and other countries, we should be you know cutting spending, cutting taxes, cutting regulations, so that way we can have more freedom, flexibility within the marketplace that we have here. And 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 just like our friends with the conservative nationalism or populist, you know, I think they get some of the things right when it comes to the labor market. You know, the the Midwest, the Rust Belt, a lot of those jobs were, quote unquote, lost uh, in in those states. But the solutions, and I think even some of their assumptions that they go into that say, you know what, this is a market problem. Mm. Uh, Or even if they come up with it and say that the government was the problem, to your point that you said was that they'll try to come up with a government solution to that problem. Let's subsidize wages. Let's 
create tariffs so that way that trade can't quote unquote take our jobs. But what but what we tend to see, in, in Sam, and this is my kind of question for you, is 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 that over time what we usually see is when government tries to solve a problem created by government, <laughs> it exacerbates the problem. It doesn't make the problem any better. And I think that from our founding, going back to the founders, this is something that they understood very well which is why they created the economic system of federalism, the liberty that we were going to have here that was very much different than really any other place in the world. And, and so with all that, I mean, I'd love to get your reaction, but also kind of where in your book, how you started where we were going in America and, and why we have now the next, the next American economy. Well, there's a lot of things I can say in response to uh, what you've just laid out there. Let's start with the, the, the national conservative or the economic nationalist interpretation of what's happened to America. Say, for example, with something like manufacturing. Well, right. you and I both know that manufacturing, in terms of productivity, in terms of international competitiveness, we're actually doing pretty well. Uh, it's right. as a percentage of the American economy, it's certainly shrunk, but that doesn't mean it's less productive. In fact, it's more productive than ever because we have taken advantage of comparative advantage. We're focused upon what we do well, which is high tech manufacturing, right? So if you go into a factory today, and I talk about this in the book, you don't see sort of a 1950s scene, right, with lots of people doing very difficult, hard, laborious work, and mostly men for that matter, right? What you walk in is you see high tech, you see men and women walking around wearing lab coats, uh, doing, producing things that we, we do better than anyone else right now compared to everyone else in terms of the whole comparative advantage argument. So, so that's one thing I often point out. And I'll say, yes, the, the number of jobs has certainly shrunk, but that's not primarily because of competition from China or any other country for that matter. It's primarily because of technology. That's the reason why. And, and, and study after study written by institutions that often come at these questions from very different political perspectives have more or less all converged on that same answer. So what that means is we have to think about how do we assist those communities that have been sort of changed as a consequence of this. And the really good news is that most manufacturing communities have in fact changed and adapted. And the ones that haven't, places like Youngstown, Ohio, for example, which is the famous case that's always used, government program after government program that's been tried there has not fixed the solution. It's, act it's actually made things in some respects <laughs> much more difficult, right? So, and much more prone to not change. So there's a story about manufacturing, I think, that's about and often embraced by many people on the right and on the left that's simply false. And I try to explain why that is the case. And, and Sam, if, if, mm -hmm. I, if I could just real quick is, I think from the latest that I've saw is as share of GDP, manufacturing is about 11%. Yeah, that's, I think that's about right. Now that's slightly down from what it was in say, 1950 or, or whatever, right. but, but that doesn't really matter, I think. Right. And, and, and to your point, not only we have many, we have um, new innovations and, and things of that nature um, that have become more capital intensive right. using more capital compared to labor intensive, more labor, but the economy has also diversified. Correct. I mean, 
why is it necessary for us to have a, a fixed share of GDP for manufacturing or something else? It's kind of like in Texas where I live, oil and gas used to be about one out of every $4 in the economy. Now it's one out of every 10. I mean, okay, so we've destroyed the oil and gas sector. No, it's still flourishing, but it's just diversified economy, which ends up being a more flourishing economy for, for everyone instead of just a select few. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so when I hear people say things like, well, manufacturing is this compared to this at this particular point in time, I say it doesn't matter. What matters is whether the overall economy is flourishing. It matters whether that particular sector is productive. Now, if there was a decline in productivity, okay, well, that's an issue, right? And we can have a discussion right. about that. But declines in productivity, uh, they have to do with, I think, instances where those sectors of the economy are becoming less competitive. And that usually has, that's obviously something to do with who's becoming more competitive globally in a particular sector. But it's also to do with things like overregulation. It's also to do with things like, for example, in the car manufacturing industry in, in the Midwest, where you just talked about with the Rust Belt. If you want to explain why places like Detroit have gone the way that they did from about 1970s onwards, it's really got nothing to do with competition from Japan or China. It's got everything to do with complacent management going along with overmighty unions who basically refused to adapt to competition, refused to adapt to technological change. When you do that, you can't help. You can't help but encourage and facilitate lack of productivity and at the consequent economic decline that goes along with that. So I think these are some of the arguments I think we should be making to our friends who are sort of tempted by these, these I think, very bad economic ideas, but also explaining to them what's really going on. And when we talk about things like what percentage of what particular sector is in the American economy is part of, those are in a way a sort of false discussions. They're not really important in terms of understanding what's going on in the overall economy. And think about it this way. All those people who worked in manufacturing, I mean, those it's not like they're unemployed forever. Like lots of those people have gone on and done other things. Now, I understand it's hard for a 56-year-old um, car manufacturer, worker, to suddenly, it's not like he can just get up and go to California and, and start a, um, a tech firm or something like that. The transitions are certainly difficult. But it's also the case that when the state gets in the business of trying to sort of manage the transition, we know that that turns out to be deeply problematic. And often it's just window dressing to try it so that you can sell the bigger change that's coming along the line. The best right. thing we can do is make it as easy as possible for people to transition in as painless a way. And you don't do that by industrial policy or by using tariffs, which, and this is the thing I often point out to people, when we think about tariffs, we have to understand they hurt us. They hurt us just as much as they ostensibly hurt our competitors. A great example, and you, I'm sure you'll be familiar with this, remember the, the Trump tariffs, right? And they were put on, was it the steel industry and manufacturing? Yes, yes. They, saved, they saved about an estimated 6,000 jobs in the steel industry. But they also cost 70,000 jobs downstream, right? So, and also it reduced right. in higher prices for American consumers, etc. 
And these, these have always been challenges, as you know, for free marketers like you and me to point out the sort of the longer term consequences of some of these policies, because particularly in a political climate like our own, where the electoral cycle is happening all the time and people are looking for short-term solutions and politicians and government officials are promising short-term solutions. That's a, that's a challenge, right, for us to explain, okay, you could do this and you might have this particular effect for this particular amount of time, but I guarantee that the long-term effect is going to be very, very bad for America. Yep, uh, I agree. You know, when, when you look back, so in, in your book, Next American Economy, keep saying that. I hope, hope the audience will go out and, and get a copy because it, it's a great book. Peter Bedke, one of our, one of our friends, he wrote a, good, a great piece uh, recently uh, on the Acton's website um, that I thought really went through a lot of the key points that are in there on the institutions, the importance of institutions. But one of the things that really captured my attention as well is from the American founding and I, mm-hmm. I, I'd love for you to kind of go through what your thoughts are on what set America apart. Because you mentioned earlier of how most of human history was mostly about poverty. It's a, it's a pretty new phenomenon that we've seen this increase in prosperity that's been able to happen. And, and, a, and, and a lot of that was given from the institutional framework that was mm-hmm. set up where, you know, I, I'm a classical liberal. I'm I, um, more of a lowercase libertarian in a lot of ways, but I'm not an anarchist or an anarcho-capitalist. I believe in limited role, rules of the game for for government to be able to set, right? Um, and so I wondered from your research, what did you really find that helped us to set the stage for what the prosperity we've seen now in America? Well, I think institutions and norms are part of, in fact, they're essential. They're in some respects even more essential than the economics in some respects, right? So if you look at the founding period. And if you read, for example, the Federalist Papers, which, as you know, is incredibly important for understanding the Constitution, the sort of the, the, the political economy, let's call it, that's expressed through documents like the Federalist Papers, the vision of America is one of what we would call a commercial republic. And that means two things. One is Obviously, the, the, the word commerce points to the notion that this was not going to be a society in which economic relations were run along feudal lines or even mercantilist lines, that this was going to be a society in which commerce, so entrepreneurship, competition, dynamic trade inside America, but also between America and the rest of the world, These were seen as normal. These were things that were perceived to be the sort of the dominant mode in which most people live their lives on a day-to-day basis. That's sort of revolutionary in many respects because republics up until then had been for the most part sort of like the, the, the late Roman Republic, highly militaristic exercises, or like the French Republic after the French Revolution, a highly state orientated militaristic enterprise. So the commercial republic envisaged by the founders is a very different type of thing. And the word republic, that means a couple of things. That means things like um, limited government, uh, that power ultimately comes from the people, that we have checks and balances in place to make sure that we don't end up with populism, but we also don't end up with oligarchy. But it's also a reference to the virtue the virtues, and this is a phrase 
that the founders used over and over again. Virtues, virtues, virtues. Classical virtues, commercial virtues, and also religious virtues. They talked about this, this all the time. And by the way, you find the same thing expressed in Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. So, so their vision of, of, of America as a commercial republic is of this dynamic, economically dynamic, economically creative, competitive, dynamic, trading nation. And informed by this particular vision of America and the world and this sort of self-understanding of Americans as entrepreneurs, as people who go out there and do things and don't expect others to do things for them. Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to America in the 1830s, one of the first things he said was, everyone here is an entrepreneur. They get up, they create a business, they do something and they move on to something else even before they're finished, whatever the other project was. <laughs> and I have to say, as someone, as you, as you mentioned, who was born outside the United States, it's one of the first yes. things I noticed about America, right? Now, yeah. we're, we're a long way from away from that world, right? I mean, in many respects, America, especially since the progressive era, has headed down this sort of mildly social democratic type of path. But if you go back and you look at the founding and you look at the the papers like the Federalist Papers or just read George Washington's farewell address, the the vision of America there is very much one of a commercial republic, not much reference to protectionism. There's no call for sort of we need trade barriers and we need to be afraid of the world. It's a vision of Americans trading with themselves and, and the rest of the world in a dynamic fashion. It's also an America in which Things like property rights are taken very seriously, in which rule of law is seen as a very important exercise. And yes, there is a role for government, but the role for government is confined and restricted and managed by checks and balances, not just at the federal level, but also between the federal level and the state level as well. And the the emphasis is upon protecting and promoting as much liberty and personal responsibility as possible. That's a great vision. That's a grand vision, right? That's a grand vision right. that, that is inspiring. And I think it's particularly inspiring, frankly, to immigrants. That's why so many people want to come here because they're not asking for a handout. They're asking in many cases simply for the ability to participate in this great American experiment of America as a commercial republic. And when it comes to people like you and I who are in the business of selling and explaining the case for free markets, often to quite skeptical audiences, I think we have to do two things. We have to talk about the economics because that really matters. As you say, to explain to people what's really going on in the economy, to understand what's really happened to manufacturing, to understand that tariffs and protectionism are a really bad way to go, or that industrial policy is hugely expensive, usually doesn't work. The Japanese and the Chinese have tried it. It didn't work. We can do all that, but we also need to wrap our message up and let's talk this robust normative message, which I think is sometimes to be self-critical for a moment is where those of us on the free market side have often, we've often let ourselves down. We've talked a lot about economic policy. We've talked about understanding the economic way of thinking, how markets work, etc. We've often been less good at explaining why this matters for America, why this is good and part of who we are as a people. As a people, we are not meant to be another Western European social 
democracy in which managed decline is the norm. We're meant to be a commercial republic that's dynamic, that's forward-looking, that provides opportunity for millions of people to flourish as they ought. And that's the vision, I think, that we have to talk about today, particularly at a time in which questions of identity, which I think is what often drives some of this economic nationalism and some of this national conservatism, when questions of identity have moved to the forefront of politics, we have to think about that very carefully as free marketers and show how we can make the case for markets normatively compelling because it's who we're meant to be as a people. Yeah, uh, amen. <laughs> um, I, I agree. I think that's well put. And I love the way that you laid that out there, too, about the founding fathers and what was going on at that time, what they were setting the stage for, for the future, and including George Washington's farewell address. Uh, I think that, that it was so um, important at that time to lay, out, lay that foundation for the future right. of where we needed to head that, that was visionary. Too often today, I think we lack a lot of that visionary outlook for the future, at least one that is liberty loving, you know, free market oriented. There, there usually is some aspect that's going to have the government influence over time. And as you said, maybe that was from the progressive era, kind of got built into our psyche uh, and, and our discussions. I mean, a lot of that you saw the expansion under President Wilson mm-hmm. and Congress, 16th Amendment. In 1913, with the personal income tax, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, yeah. the things that all happened right. during that time was a massive expansion of government. World War One, right? Then you saw the the, the New Deal under mm-hmm. FDR and the expansion of the alphabet soup of different regulatory agencies that were put in place to save the American economy and and everything else during the Great Depression. I think we would probably say it, it created the Great Depression, or at least made it longer and Absolutely. deeper than it would otherwise be. Yes, but then but then of course you had LBJ uh, and the Great Society. And the expansion of what happened during that period of time. But it's not just been those presidents. I mean, you've also got to look under George W. Bush. You had Medicare Part D mm-hmm. with the prescription drugs under under Medicare and the expansion that happened there. And so it's kind of one thing after another. And you mentioned this earlier, but I'd like to dig into it a little bit more. Is I, I too think that we are heading more towards a system of socialism and have been for a while. People talk about the free market capitalism has failed. And I usually ask, what free market capitalism are you talking about? <laughs> right. You know, I, I often see that my default is usually that the government is the problem, that there are government failures. We can have perceived market failures, but I think that the marketplace through pricing mechanisms and profit and loss better direct resources by the subjective values of each one of those within that marketplace compared to a top-down approach from government trying to set the, you know, trying to direct resources on their own because of the limited knowledge, right? The knowledge problem that Hayek talked about and and other sort of issues like Buchanan's public choice economics. Mm -hmm. I I think there's so much of that at play here. And Douglas North with his institutional economics is important for us to understand economics and the direction of where we're heading so that we can explain these things, as you were mentioning there, Sam, that these aren't quote unquote market failures, these are really government failures. When you look at our system of healthcare, about 65 cents of every dollar is spent by government, the taxpayer, not by the private market. When you look at education, about 90 cents of every dollar are spent by the government, i.e. the taxpayer, not by the private market. You, you know, you go to manufacturing, the influence that subsidies and tax breaks and all those things have, you have a lot of government intervention 
manipulation, if you will, right. <laughs> the Federal Absolutely. Reserve, with, with all its increase in the money supply and targeting of interest rates that have created a system that now we see it as a national debt of $31 trillion. We see interest rates are going up right now. The economy is slowing. I think we've been in a recession for a while, and maybe we're going to have an even deeper one going into next year as rates go up and everything else. But how do we better internalize what the costs of these governmental interventions are now and explain them so that we can learn these lessons and not um, repeat them again? Well, <laughs> that's a big question. So I th there's a couple of things. One is I think good history is really important for us to understand. I'm a big fan, as right. I'm sure you are, Vance, of Amity Schley's and her book, yes. The, the yes. Great Society, The Great Society, and her book, The Forgotten Man, which, of course, is an analysis of uh, the New Deal. And in both of those books, she sort of quite sympathetically picks apart the real history of what happened in these periods of time so that the dominant narrative, which, of course, as you know, is the New Deal saved America and that the Great Society was this wonderful thing that created all these fantastic opportunities for minorities who had been segregated and oppressed, etc., and she sort of unwraps all that and says, no, <laughs> that's not actually what happened. That there is, uh, that if you look very carefully at the details of these things, you discover that, as you said, these things made matters much worse. So that's one thing I, have, I think we have to do. Uh, and yes. also, I mean, going back to the progressive era, you mentioned that, to sort of unpack the degree to which both Democrat and Republican presidents, like Teddy Roosevelt, was it progressive and right. how much they embraced the idea of the administrative state. And, and remember, Wilson sort of speaking very condescendingly about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and saying, we sort of just need to get beyond all this stuff, right? So we need to, yeah. the good history, I think, is very important. And that's a challenge, right? Because history has been more or less captured by the left. The 1619 People Project, they know exactly what they're doing. They'll say quite openly they're not interested in the sort of actual history. They want to create a narrative, right? a narrative that is quite contrary to the actual history of the United States. But I think capturing and winning the history wars is part of, I think, of what we have to do. The second thing I think we should be doing is trying to explain to people how these, these often quite abstract ideas that you and I will talk about you know, to all sorts of different people, how they actually impact their lives. So I'm having to explain to people now, for example, um, uh, people who are 17-year-olds, teenagers, what inflation is, right? Because we have a whole generations of two generations of people who have no experience of what inflation is and why it's damaging. And to show how it impacts their lives very directly, because it's one thing to talk in aggregates, right? The Keynesians are always talking in terms of aggregates. But I think those of us on the free market side, we need to show how these things affect people on a day-by-day -day basis so that they understand, why is it I'm paying more for my groceries? Why is it that I'm getting salary increases or wage increases, but my standard of living is clearly not what it was? Uh, or you mentioned uh, the healthcare system to help people understand that when Europeans say, well, the American health system is this pure laissez-faire market-run system to say, uh, no, no, 
it's not. It's this weird hybrid of private and public that is becoming more and more dysfunctional. And Obamacare simply made the, the situation worse. To show yeah. people just how much is spent on things like administration rather than right. the actual delivery of healthcare. I mean, those are very practical things we can show in people's everyday lives how these bad policies, which go back 100 years, maybe even longer, are really damaging us. And also to take it from that abstract level to the personal level, so good history, making and also making these things more real to people, but also challenging people to say, do you think that the founders would have envisaged this country as it is now as consistent with the vision that they were laying out in the 1770s and 1780s? Because the answer is obviously no. The answer is just obviously no. And people on the left will say that. They'll freely concede that point, right? So I think that one of the reasons I talk a lot about the founding in the book is because what makes us different as Americans, and I think this is important for communicating to, let's call them normal people about these issues, yeah. right? I, I don't say ordinary people, I say normal people, is that for our identity does not come from race, it doesn't come from an ethnicity, it doesn't even come from language, it doesn't even come from um, the sorts of things that European nations typically associate with their identity. Our identity comes from the texts, documents, debates and personalities of that crucial founding period. So for us as free marketers going forward, I think it's really important to link ourselves back to that because that's the only source of identity that Americans have qua Americans. And the left certainly aren't going to do that. In fact, they've given up on that. They despise most of that. But I worry when I see people on the right talking about, well, the failure of the American experiment or giving up on liberty or looking to models of regimes that you or I would say, well, okay, that fits a particular trajectory of European political history, but I'm really sure we don't want to go down that path because it's alien to who we are as Americans. So at least then we're in a position to sort of force people who are who are moving in that direction to sort of concede that they have given up on America. Okay, fine, then we know where you stand. So I think linking back to American identity when it comes to explaining these arguments is going to be a challenge for us, but I think it's one that we really don't have any choice but to embrace. Yeah, no, that, that, yeah that's good. That'll leave the audience uh, a lot of things to, 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 to think about, um, as you know, thought-provoking issues that are there. And one of the things that I was thinking about as you were mentioning that was the next American economy, right? The title of your book is, is in some sense trying to go back to the past economy, right? <laughs> it's, it, it's trying to go back to and the, the time when we had that more flexibility and freedom for entrepreneurs to flourish and do what they do best instead of this more top-down approach. It's, it's mm -hmm. almost like we need, to, we need to go back to the past. <laughs> we need the past <laughs> economy and the next economy for us to really have this flourishing. And I, I, is that something like what, you're, what you were thinking? Um, well, because I'm, too often mm -hmm. it seems like we really are trying to redefine so many things in our economy, whether it be capitalism, that capitalism is somehow 
only about the self-interest, which I think people really need to read again your your point about history. They really need to read Adam Smith more, mm-hmm. thinking about the more the more the theory of moral sentiments about it wasn't about self-interested. It was it was more about being loved and loving. Um, I like how Russ Roberts talks a lot about Adam Smith and in the right. view of uh, the theory of moral sentiments, but it's become so much that capitalism has, has failed us. And so we need to move to socialism without them having a proper understanding of, of socialism. And so it could, could helping us go back to that really allow for us to have a better next economy. Thank you for all the work that you do, Sam. Um, and thank you for all the work that a- AIER does. Um, just great work uh, in, in explaining these issues in a simple way that people can understand and whilst continuing to try to change the minds of intellectuals at the same time, <laughs> there's got to be a happy balance between the two um, for us to have that great next American economy that you've wrote, written about and talked about so eloquently um, here today. So we've recorded this on October 25th, 2022. I look forward to that next American economy of more freedom, more liberty, more prosperity as we continue to work on this um, together in many ways. And we have more to do. This is just the beginning of a longer term project, just like the American project was started with a, as an idea. And we've gotten to this point now. There's still uh, it's, it's ongoing. And one of the other ways that, you know, I think that we get our identity from is also kind of our Judeo-Christian values. And as we continue to reach back and loving our neighbors, we've got to remember that. And um, capitalism, free markets are the best way to do that, uh, ultimately, uh, because it, it provides for more people to prosper overall, to allow for them to do whatever they're going to do best instead of a top-down approach of somebody else telling us what to do. So again, Sam, Thank you for being on the show. Blessings to you and yours. Um, and thank you all for watching and or watching and listening to Let People Prosper show. And please give us a rating. We'd love a five star if you could. All right. Let people prosper. Let people prosper.